Good morning. As we continue to worship through the preaching of God's Word, would you open in your Bibles with me to the book of 2 John? Book of 2 John. It's a great privilege uh, to be back here at GCC. For those of you uh, who may not know me, I was a member here for about two and a half years. Uh, During that time, uh, I had the opportunity to serve um, as pastoral intern and be encouraged, prayed for, and mentored by many of you. That's one of the greatest blessings that God has given me. Now, about eight months ago, um, I had the opportunity to serve in full-time pastoral ministry, and that's what I'm currently doing. Um, I'm the associate pastor at One Church. It's a recent church plant in Clifton. And what we're doing is another pastor by the name of Brian Barrett and myself, us and about 25 others are gathered together at the Cliff Tex, uh, where I'm responsible for uh, opening up the Word and teaching uh, the basics of ecclesiology, where we're looking at the biblical foundations for a local church as we seek to be faithful to the Lord in that. Then I shepherd also one of our care groups that meets during the week. Um, One of the ways that you can uh, pray for us, and we would certainly um, appreciate that, really just that we would be directed by the Word of God in everything that we do. It is sufficient for everything that we do, both in our doctrine and our practice. And that is our ultimate goal, um, is to glorify the Lord as a local church. So we would appreciate your prayers. So let's look at 2 John together. We'll be considering uh, the entire 13 verses this morning. This is the word of the Lord. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face 
so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So the focus of this letter really focuses on two characteristics. It's that of truth and love. And if you were to ask most people, I'm in the world today, what is the relationship of truth and love? The answer that you would get most likely is that they are polar opposites. And if that's not the answer, at the very least, they compete with one another. Right? So you can be a person of the truth, but that entails that you're going to be unloving. Or you can choose to be loving and sacrifice the truth. And yet this, is, this, this false dichotomy is not found in Scripture. In fact, what you find is both truth and love bound together, sometimes in the exact same phrase. Right? Truth and love exist in perfect harmony in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 13, 6, Paul says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And in Ephesians 4, Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And you find this relationship weaved together all the way throughout John's second letter. I'd like to make three observations this morning. First, is truth and love motivated? Then truth and love maintained? And finally, truth and love manifested. Let's begin in verse 1. Truth and love motivated. John starts out his letter with a greeting. The elder to the elect lady and her children. John himself refers to himself as the elder, but the person that he addresses, or better yet, the group that he addresses, really has an unusual phrase. And it's caused some discussion as to what the identity of this elect lady is. Now, some commentators will take that as an individual woman and her children. And that's possible, but other commentators take that as a reference to a local church. And I think that's to be preferable, a local church and her members, particularly in view of the scriptural description of the church as the bride of Christ. Elect lady is, is a fitting characteristic. Regarding the church as the bride of Christ, one of my favorite hymns emphasizes this theme written by Arthur Stone. He says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. The church as the elect lady, chosen by God, given unto Christ as a bride. And this is whom John says that he loves. He loves this local church and its members. However, John says, not only does he love this local church, but this is true of 
all who know the truth. And so what does that tell us? It's that one of the marks of a true Christian is love for the local church. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not love the church. But what's the reason for this? Well, John says he loves the church and all who know the truth love the church because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. And so in this introduction, John has mentioned the truth several times. Now, what does he mean? Now, basic assumption would be that he means the gospel. And that's certainly true, but in this term, he focuses in on the centerpiece of the gospel. It is Jesus Christ himself. It is Jesus Christ that abides in believers and will be with us forever. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the very embodiment of the truth. And with his disciples in John 14, he promises that he will abide with us and will be with us forever. He says in John 14, beginning in verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Christ abides with the believer and dwells in the believer through the Holy Spirit. And that is the source of John's love and all believers' love for the local church. Then he opens up for us what some of these great gospel blessings are for those who have Christ abiding in them and dwelling with them. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Now, this is a common opening in a New Testament letter. You'll find characteristic in Paul in almost all of his letters. He begins by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But you'll notice here in John, he's doing something slightly different than what the other New Testament writers do. Usually in their greetings, they're offering a blessing to the believers that they're writing to. However, John here is not just offering a blessing, he is reminding them of what is true of them. He said the truth abides in believers and will be with believers forever. And he further wants to remind them that grace, mercy, and peace will always be with the believer. This will become very important with the imperatives that he's going to give them in the body of the letter as they encounter false teaching about the person of Christ. But what is the source? What is the source of this grace and mercy and peace that is with the believer? It doesn't come from within ourselves. John says it's from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Jesus Christ being the embodiment of truth, him being the source of the grace and mercy and peace that we have through his sacrifice for us. He is the one who reveals to us the Father. He shows us the character of God 
as these great gospel blessings flow out of the very essence of who God is. John says in the opening of his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It is Jesus Christ who is the source of all the good, all the blessings that we experience from God. How often do we need to be reminded of that? How often do we forget the great blessings from God that we have in Christ? Jerry Bridges, um, in his book, The Discipline of Grace, reminds us of why we need to meditate so often on the gospel. He says, This then is the gospel with which we need to become thoroughly familiar and that we need to preach to ourselves every day. Jesus, by his death and shed blood, completely satisfied the justice of God and the claims of his broken law. By his perfect obedience, he positively fulfilled the requirements of the law. Thus, in both its precepts and penalty, the law of God and its most exacting requirements was fulfilled by Jesus. And he did this in our place as our representative and substitute. Is the gospel a reality in your life? Have you tasted of the truth that is Jesus Christ? His grace, his mercy, the peace with God that we have through him. If you haven't, my friend, look unto Christ. Look unto Christ, the one who reveals to us the character of God, the one who is full of grace and truth, the one who became man and was a sacrifice in the place of sinners, that you may experience the great gospel blessings from God. Turn to Christ and be saved. And if you are a Christian, if you have tasted of the gospel, you need to be reminded of this every day. It is our great motivation in living the Christian life is remembering what God has done for us in Christ. And it is with this motivation that John then moves in to the body of the letter. Beginning in verse four, we see truth and love maintained. Truth and love maintained. He says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So in writing to this local church, he tells them that he has encountered some of these members. He has seen some of these people and witnessed the fact that they are walking in the truth, that they are living in accordance with the gospel that they profess, just as they were commanded by the Father. John wrote in his first letter, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And John is rejoicing to see the believers in this local church doing this. But as he continues through this letter, he's going to give three imperatives that are going to be important if not only these people that he's encountered are going to continue walking in the truth, 
but also the rest of the local church as well. And the first imperative he gives is to adhere. Adhere. He says in verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. So having reported to this local church that he's witnessed their members walking in the truth, he encourages them to continue doing that. And he tells them to love one another. However, he's not telling them anything new, and he clarifies as much by saying, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but one that you've had from the beginning. So from the very beginning of these believers' Christian lives, not only have they heard the gospel, they know the person and work of Christ, and they have trusted in him alone for salvation, but they've also heard the teaching of Christ. This chief command that he gave the disciples just before he entered in uh, to the time of his death. In John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Such a simple sounding command, but so rich, is it not? D.A. Carson explains the significance of this command to love one another just as Christ has loved us. He says the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. The more we recognize the depth of our own sin, the more we recognize the love of the Savior, and the higher his standard appears. This commandment is presented as the marching order for the new covenant community, brought into existence by the redemption long ago purposed by God himself. The new command is therefore not only the obligation of the new covenant community to respond to the God who has loved them and redeemed them by the oblation of his Son, and their response to his gracious election, which constituted them his people. It is a privilege which, rightly lived out, proclaims the true God before a watching world. That's why this command so fitly encapsulates what it is to walk in the truth. John goes on to say, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. It's important that John clarify this. Because think about today. If you were to go ask someone, what does it mean to love one another? There's a variety of answers that you would get. But I'm thinking what John explains here is maybe not the one that you would expect first. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. So John clarifies here that the love command is not simply a feeling. It is not simply sentiment. But on the other hand, it's also not a cold, emotionless checklist either. But rather, it is a desire for God. It is a love for him that expresses itself in obedience 
to his commandments, a willing obedience to his commandments. John captures this well in his first letter in 1 John chapter 5. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So to love God is to have a desire for him that is the result of God's work in us in the new birth that manifests itself in obeying his commandments, not as some sort of yoke or not as some sort of burden, but rather a willing obedience to a loving father. This is what it is to love one another. And when John gets to verse 7, he gives a second imperative, and that is to abide. The reason that he has so emphasized adherence to the love command, to loving one another, is because of the context in which these believers are living at the time. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. So they're living in the context of deception. And John doesn't leave us thinking or wondering what exactly this deception is because he tells us exactly. They are those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So the heresy that the Christians are dealing with in Ephesus is that there are those who are saying that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, and by extension, he did not die as an atoning sacrifice on the cross. What this is a result of is a type of dualistic thinking that places everything that is spiritual as being good and everything that is physical as being bad. So based on this philosophy, Jesus then could not have had a physical body. He could not be God in the flesh and therefore could not have died as a sacrifice in the place of sinners. And such a rank heresy accounts for why John unequivocally states that such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Now, in saying this, he's not suggesting that the false teachers here in Ephesus are the ultimate end-time figure. But in their teaching, denying that Jesus came in the flesh is that they are, in effect, doing the work of the Antichrist in preaching a false gospel. Thomas Watson explains why false doctrine is so dangerous. He says this, they abuse their souls that poison their they abuse their souls that poison their souls. And error is a sweet poison. A man may as well condemn his soul by error as vice and may as soon go to hell for a drunken opinion as for a drunken life. False doctrine, heresy of this kind, is a destroyer of souls. Therefore, John says, watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. John calls these believers to keep watch so that they are not drawn away from the faith 
by this false teaching. But how are we to do this? How are we to watch out? How are we to be on guard against false teaching? Well, in his first letter, John gives some instructions as to how to discern these things. He says in 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. In other words, everything that is marketed as Christian is not Christian. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the way in which we discern true doctrine and false doctrine is by the Scriptures. Scripture alone is our authority for discerning doctrine. If any doctrine does not agree with what is revealed in Scripture, it is not of God. It is not of God. John goes on to say, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. False doctrine is not simply a well-meaning mistake. To believe heresy about Jesus is to not have God himself. It is to be lost. And to stay in such a state guarantees your condemnation. Notice that John says everyone who goes on ahead. So apparently John characterized this particular heresy as this fanciful idea that had advanced beyond the truth revealed in Scripture, the truth that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. These false teachers saw that as some sort of archaic idea, but now they had advanced to something better and something superior, something new. It reminded me of something that was written during Charles Spurgeon's day. In the late 1800s, he was very concerned about the doctrinal shift and really the seeming downslide of theology within the Baptist Union. And so his friend and fellow pastor, Robert Schindler, did some research tracing the the development of theology from the Puritan era to their present day. And what they found is that it just continued to degrade and degrade and degrade, ultimately into apostasy with heresies such as Arianism and Socinianism. So Robert Schindler wrote several articles, the first one titled The Downgrade. And this is how he concluded it. This is what he thought about new ideas. These facts furnish a lesson for the present times when, as in some cases, it is all too plainly apparent men are willing to forego the old for the sake of the new. But commonly it is found in theology that that which is true is not new and that which is new is not true. The truth of Christ does not change. It does not advance. And there are no new ideas 
that replace it. The gospel never changes, and there's only one gospel. John goes on to say, on the other hand, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Whoever abides in the teaching. John is telling these believers to remain in the gospel that you have heard from the beginning. Because those who do have both the Father and the Son. This is a repetition of something that he says in his first letter in chapter 2. It says, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. It is abiding in the gospel that we have assurance of eternal life. Because eternal life is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Finally, in verse 10, he gives the third imperative, which is to avoid. Avoid. He tells these believers what they are to do if they are to come across any of these false teachers, if they are to encounter any of them. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Now, this is quite the shocking statement during this period of time where hospitality was very important. Now, hospitality is a Christian virtue. And in fact, John commends it in 3 John. In speaking to Gaius in this letter, he says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. In fact, he even condemns Diotrephes for refusing to receive these itinerant missionaries that have been sent from John's church. Because he, not only did he not receive those brothers, that anyone who attempted to, he tried to put them out of the church. And so John tells guys that when he comes, that he's going he's, he's to bring that up. And he's going to rebuke him for not showing hospitality to these itinerant missionaries. So why the difference? Why the difference between what he says in 2 John and 3 John? Because you have itinerant missionaries that are sent from a particular local church with a letter of recommendation. And as they go from city to city, that what is expected is for people to receive them into their homes and to provide for them and to send them on their way and support them as they go about preaching. Why does he condemn it in 2 John and approve of it in 3 John? Well, the key is what he tells Gaius. For they have gone out for the sake of the name. Those missionaries are preaching Christ. He says in verse 8 that those who support them are fellow workers in what? In the truth. However, this does not apply to those who preach a false gospel. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, meaning the gospel, do not receive him into your house 
or give him any greeting. And this is consistent with what Paul writes in Romans 16 regarding those who do not preach the gospel, who do not live in accordance to it. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And finally, in verse 11, he gives them a warning. They're not to receive anyone into their house that preaches a false gospel. They're not to give them any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So he tells these Christians, for you to receive a false teacher, for you to give credence to their message by supporting them, you become responsible for the false doctrine that they preach. So if I came here today and I were preaching a false Jesus and a false gospel, not only would you be right to throw me out, you would be obligated to. You would be commanded to by God. We are not to give any credence to a false gospel. Rather, we are to support those who preach the true gospel, who preach Christ. And it is disobedience to this command that J. Gresham Machen identified as the biggest problem in the church during his day when he wrote his book, Christianity and Liberalism. He said that there are many problems in the church, and there are many reasons for those problems. But the number one problem, the number one problem was not only receiving non-Christians into membership, but more disturbingly, putting them in the pulpit. And it is in this context that he said, the greatest menace to the Christian church today comes not from the enemies outside, but from the enemies within. It comes from the presence within the church of a type of faith and practice that is anti-Christian to the core. So if we are to walk in truth and love, John says we are to adhere to God's commands, we are to abide in Christ, and we are to avoid false teachers. So John concludes his letter in verse 12, verses 12 and 13, where we see truth and love manifested. He says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. So John has written a short letter to this local church, giving them basically the high points of the things he wants to commend them on and the things that he wants to encourage them to do. However, he has much more to say. But instead of writing a longer letter, you see that his desire is to come to them and to talk face to face. And so you see truth and love put forth here by John. Not only does he want to instruct these Christians and encourage them and direct them in living the Christian life, but he also wants to fellowship with them. He wants to be with them. And so he desires to see them face to face 
And this is where I think truth and love are made most manifest. It's here in the local church, in the gathering of Christ's body, where we assemble together, we encourage one another in song, so we open up the word and see what God has to say to us, and we fellowship together, and we do so face to face. Truth and love are made most manifest in the gathering of the local church. So we've seen truth and love weaved all the way through this letter as John writes to the local church. So how are we to walk in truth and love? If we're to be a people who are characterized not by one or the other, but by both, as the Bible indicates, if we're to walk in truth and love, how do we do that? What do we need to do in order to go about that? I think the key is in the middle of the letter where he tells them to abide in the teaching. To abide in the teaching. The teaching there refers not just to the identity of Christ, his person and his work, but also his teaching. So abiding in Christ is to hold fast to the truth that he is God incarnate, that he did die as a sacrifice for sinners and rise bodily from the dead. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for all who believe. And it also includes the commands that he gave us, the marching orders that he gave us to love one another just as I have loved you. We are to abide in Christ. If we're going to walk in truth and love, Christ must be central to everything that we think, everything that we say. No matter where we are or what we're doing, Christ is to be our focus. We're to abide in him. And William Bridge gives us an example of how to do that in day-to-day life, no matter where we are or what we're doing. Listen to what he says. Cast your eyes where you will. You shall hardly look upon anything, but Jesus Christ hath taken that name upon himself. If you cast your eyes up to heaven in the day and behold the sun, he is called the son of righteousness. If you cast your eyes in the night upon the stars or in the morning upon the morning star, he is called the bright morning star. If you behold your own body, He is called the head and the church, the body. If you look upon your own clothes, he is called your raiment. Put ye on the Lord Jesus. If you behold your meat, he is called bread, the bread of life. If you look upon your houses, he is called a door. If you look abroad into the fields and behold the cattle of the fields, he is called the good shepherd. He is called the lamb. He is called the fatted calf. If you look upon the waters, he is called a fountain. The blood of Christ, a fountain. If you look upon the stones, he is called a cornerstone. If you look upon the trees, he is called a tree of life. What is the reason for this? Surely not only to waylay your thoughts, that wheresoever you look, Still, you should think of Christ, but to show that in, that in a spiritual way and sense, 
He is all of this unto the soul. May we abide in Christ as we seek to walk in truth and love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way in which it proclaims Christ to us and reminds us of who he is as our Savior and reminds us of the grace, and mercy, and peace, and truth, and love that belong to us in him. Father, may those truths be our motivation to live according to your commands. Father, to hold fast to true doctrine, to reject false doctrine, and to love one another just as your Son has loved us. Father, thank you for your local church where we see truth and love made manifest as we fellowship together. Father, above all, may we abide in Christ and may he be exalted in our lives. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.